and start this up. Okay, I see audio stuff bouncing and bopping. I think we're recording. All right. Yep. I'm recording a backup as well. Let's uh, let's we'll do, do it. Check one, two, check one, two. April 2nd, 2022. Precious Metals, Alternative Materials, Mr. Chase. All right, we're back in action here, Spirit of Time. Um, Matt, how are you doing today? I'm really good, actually. This is, uh, it's great to be back in, uh, in Casa de Greg here, like the, the back 40. You've got a really nice kind of welcoming setup and it's a perfect day. Actually, it's a little, uh, yeah, it is. Uh, I hope everybody brought their swimsuits. Um, we actually, our Wi-Fi is Casa del Sol. So, um, awesome. yeah, if you really want to lean all the way into the... It's like the restaurant in Studio City. That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Um, what's new in your world? Anything new happening? Uh, you know what? Just a lot of uh, work and family stuff over, you know, things are getting kind of progressively more unlocked. Um, yeah. And work is busy. I don't talk about work on the podcast, but it's been really busy. And I'll probably do my, my first, you know, multi-day work trip in like two years in about uh, three weeks. So that'll be interesting and fun going to Vegas. So, yeah. Speaking of Vegas, did they just announce the 2023 uh, F1 race, right? They did, yeah, wow. yeah. So November 2023, um, nighttime race. Um, the main straight is going to be Las Vegas Boulevard, right? So the strip, cool. I have no idea how they're going to do it. I mean, on the one hand, I hope they don't do it like Miami where there is no general admission. So everything is really, really expensive. On the other hand, it's such tight quarters. I don't know how they would not do, you know, reserve seating and that's it. You yeah. know, it's going to be a complete VIP situation for anything even remotely strip-facing in any of the hotels. Which is very on-brand for Vegas anyway. Yeah. Mm. So we'll have to see how it goes. But um, I'm excited by the prospect of it. So, yeah. Uh, update on rubber strap hunt. I had uh, asked for some watch fam feedback throughout the last week on, on some rubber strap options uh, on this uh, Bausel Ocean Moon 4. Mm. It has the... Uh, um, a synthetic canvas mm -hmm. on a deployant that it comes on, which is really nice and it's very well built. Uh, it's just too bulky for me personally, and so I needed something a little slimmer. Wanted to slim it down a little bit, and um, and was looking for like a pop of color. Oh, cool. And people came up with some really cool recommendations. Ones that were you know expected, of course, Barton, you know, great value, and they're well done. I have the the silicone elite. You get two lengths actually, which is really nice. And I needed I needed rubber that wasn't too long. I've noticed that's a really big. They tend to. Yeah, they tend yes. to run long, right? So um, you know, a couple of people have recommended Horus, of course. They make really great stuff. Um, uh, someone even recommended Scurfa, because I believe somebody white labels their rubber straps and they sell straps um, directly through you know through the yeah. shop there at Scurfa. Uh, there's an Italian brand, Benito Center. Yeah, Benito Centerini. Yeah, yeah, those are really nice. Uh, but I ended up with this one here from Strap Habit, and um, really well made, I think, for especially for the price. I gave it to you, Matt, to kind of you know you have had some nicer, you know, some expensive rubber straps too, and you said pretty pretty close on the quality. I would say yeah, that that does compare very favorably. Obviously, um, the Everest straps do have the like the end piece made up is. I presume, you know, that's really kind of miked down to the, the gnats, you know what. But um, other than that, I mean, the, the build quality and the material itself feels like it's pretty close to identical. Maybe it is identical to Everest for a fraction of the price, and Everest is a really good strap. Yeah. That looks cool. I would wonder, you could probably go with Isofrain on that, too. I bet you're right. Yeah. I bet you're right. I think it's the FKM rubber, right, um, on this one. So ZRC also makes 
very CIC. soft. And remember, they have a lot of history with dive watches, so they're no stranger to rubber, even though everybody thinks of them for traditional hides. That's a good point, actually. That's a good point. And actually, that's a good segue um, into uh, our guest. We have three people on the pod today. You yes, probably, I thought probably, it was just the audience. <laughs> <laughs> probably heard a, 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 a familiar, but maybe not expected voice. Um, we have a really fun episode lined up today. We are going to talk uh, precious and alternative metals and materials. Uh, and we're also going to talk wine. So there's some really fun things. This has actually been coming together for some time, but let me tell you who's with us. We have with us Chase Horology 411. I think most people, if not m many people, will know who Chase is. Uh, he's been on the pod before in, in various fashions. Um, but if you're not super familiar or you're, maybe you're, you're, you're new to the pod, he is what we would call an esteemed member of the local watch community and a uh, larger watch fam you know, as well. He's like the chairman emeritus. Oh, I like that chairman. Yeah, well, and we've got some chairman pieces on the table today. Yeah, we do. Um, he, I, Chase is a veritable encyclopedia of horological information and has been involved with, uh, in and with local watch meetups, watch and jewelry retail, um, and even podcasting. So Chase fact, was one of the first two podcasts I was ever aware of. That's right. Uh, Co-founder of the On Time podcast. And that's certainly what brought me in, I think, to watch podcasting, you know, as just a listener. And, uh, and I think that's given rise to several offshoots, notably the Out of Time podcast. <laughs> and uh, and it, I think, it, you know, Matt and I talked it even influenced, I think, you know, our project here that we're doing. So, and, uh, and I've no mentioned this on several posts, but Chase is my personal watch strap whisperer. Uh, without further ado, Chase. Well, thank you guys very much for having me. You certainly have lauded me with probably way uh, undue uh, compliments there, but uh, I am genuinely flattered. I almost have goosebumps, so thanks guys for having me on. It's our pleasure. This has actually been coming together uh, or, or in the works for some time, and about a year ago, when all the releases were coming out around this time, uh, we launched, by the way, so this is essentially a one-year anniversary podcast episode. And from when we started talking about it. From when we started talking about it and from when the podcast launched. Yeah, yeah, no, and we, uh, I, I, if memory serves, our very first episode that we launched, where I guess really we kind of hit with a one-two punch, we did. a double barrel, because we did Mike Heyman as well. That's correct. But yeah, we recorded in this setting with um, Josh and Summer. So we here we're back in this setting one year later. And launched on April Fools, and they wanted to. They wanted to. They tried to convince everybody that they were shutting it down and passing the torch. That's right. I remember uh, that now. In, yep. in true uh, out of time fashion. Right. Um, but right at that time, Rolex had just released the Two Tone Explorer, and that brought us to say to talk to Chase, and we said we need to get on and start talking about specifically the Two Tone Explorer, yeah. but precious metals writ large. And so we find ourselves one year later. Finally and doing it. Finally yeah. doing it with the launch of, again, more watches. Uh, but we're here and we have great wine and we have incredible things on the table. Um, this is going to be fun. And uh, I'm going to add something to what Greg said. Greg asked me if I would come on and talk about precious metals. And I said, well, gladly. But really, I don't care about the metals being precious or the material cost, so to speak. Let's. I'd much rather just talk about the material. You know, what what are you made of and why does it matter? Yeah. So here we are and we certainly have uh, quite a spread. Some precious metals, others that are not precious but potentially more interesting. 
I like it. That's the way to set it up. You know, I don't think we ever got this on air. Can you share why the Two-Tone Explorer was made right? <laughs> because <laughs> was it, it was made right again, right? It was made right. Um, I, I think that the they did something interesting with the Two-Tone Explorer. So one of the things that had traditionally bothered me about the Explorer 1, actually the Explorer 2 as well, uh, it's something if you're really into Rolexes you can look at that traditionally the um, the oyster bracelets if they were done in all steel were always brushed mm -hmm. and Jubilee bracelets were the exception in that the, the center links would be polished otherwise the high polish was reserved for example gold center links on whether it's oyster or Jubilee or presidential bracelet or the others that they used to make Rolex never polished steel in the past and one of the things that I liked really about the Explorer 2 I'm sorry I'm going to back up there that bothered me because when you look at the case on the Rolex you'll have either a domed bezel or a fluted um, there were also the engine turned bezels which Rolex has now discontinued but most of the bezels that Rolex would use were polished and you would have some polished components on the case what I never liked was the oyster bracelets then when, and the up-facing portion were always brushed. So there was nothing on the bracelet when it was facing up that really complemented the watch. And the Explorer two-tone specifically fixed that. Right, right. So whereas on the Explorer 1 all steel, you have a brushed bracelet with a domed polished bezel, the bracelet doesn't do anything for the watch to my eye. But now with the two-tone, you have the polished gold center links and the bracelet and the watch really now, you have a, a, a piece that works together and that's holistic as opposed to just the bracelet and the watch that have been attached to each other. Yeah. That was something that nobody talked about with all these reactions when the, the Two-Tone Explorer came out. You know, is it is it appropriate? Is it fit the DNA of the watch? Is it gaudy? Is it cool? Is it lame? Is it amazing? Nobody talked about that. And I just thought that was an interesting perspective. What is What is interesting though is that you, once you see this, you will never unsee it. If you look at the Datejust, or for example, a Daytona, even the all-steel models, because they're considered maybe more gentlemanly watches, now the center links are still polished. So it works as a whole piece. Now, the other thing Rolex does is they, they differentiate between their blue collar and white collar, using air quotes here, pieces, by whether or not the center links get polished. Mm. So if you look at Submariners, for example, they are brushed center links. The Explorers 1 or 2 brushed center links. The exceptions always being adding a precious metal or more of a white collar tool watch. So the Sky Dwellers or the GMTs or even the Milgauss. The Milgauss and the Air King are a great comparison because they're the same watch. But what they've done is they've, they've treated the watch slightly differently with the dial and in this case the bracelet. And it's interesting. I think at the end we'll maybe talk about some new releases and what we like, what stands out. But, uh, you know, they just recently transitioned their king out of the Milgauss case, right? Into the... They just did, yes. Yeah. Just this week, I guess, or it's, last it's, week. It's a thousand times more palatable to me now. I still don't like it. I'll be really clear and honest. I don't love that watch, but it is. it, 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 it was done better. I mean, they made incremental improvement. Not real and legitimate improvements. I don't like it, though. I think they technically improved it. I don't know how I feel about the domed bezel and the crown guards together. It doesn't, it, it almost looks put together to my eye. It doesn't look like a whole, a fully baked 
idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think they're continuing to bake the Air King. Um, Matt, walk us through a port check. What, uh, this is, uh, we've, we've set up the, the main topic for today, right? But uh, we're also getting into wine because I have two very knowledgeable wine drinkers and enthusiasts sitting with me today. Well, I'd say I'm, I personally speaking for myself, I'm moderately knowledgeable. I'm, I'm a lay I'm enthusiast. How yeah, about I, that? I, I, exactly. I, I'm a, I'm an enthusiast or you could say an, an armchair quarterback for yeah, wine. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> this is a, uh, a Chasson Montrachet. So this is, um, one of kind of the, I think what's generally thought of as being kind of the finer expressions of white burgundy, chardonnay style like what we would think of as like a premium or super premium california chardonnay mm-hmm. this would be the french equivalent um this is going to be you know uh probably a little bit more dry than you would ordinarily be used to um probably a little bit less like over the head with the big flavors to me this is kind of like drinking a slightly sweet croissant like if you mm. could pour a croissant into a glass that's what this would taste like Fantastic. Mm. That is delicious. Buttery a little bit. I want it, yeah, but not not over the top, right? No. I'd be curious to see how this tastes in about an hour. This has been open for about 15 minutes. It's just very slightly, very slightly kind of skunky. We'll see if like oxygen does anything to that. Not in a bad way, but it's got like just a, you know, a little bit of funk. It's definitely not turned. It's not, no Mm-mm. TCA, no cork. It's good. So anyway, yeah, that's what's in the glass. I'll start the wrist check. How about that? Because I, <laughs> I, you know, I see, I see what he did there. Yeah, You'll, everybody yeah. will understand in about five seconds why he did that. So yeah, this is the um, and Chase, you can jump in here with the reference number. Not that I care. This is the thirty-six millimeter all gold, burl wood dialed, Rolex day date, thirty-six millimeter, and I feel like an absolute rock star wearing this thing like this i am straight up like 1980s tony montagna drug lord kind of guy um it's just, this is just an awesome awesome watch i love how the the day and date wheels have like a bit of a cream color to them instead of being white so they're not really dial matched but it's a perfect accent super cool watch i've never had anything like this on wrist for more than five minutes and just thank you for letting me wear this during the episode i'm like oh, oh it's, it's so heavy <laughs> it's really cool how about you man what do you got uh i'm gonna let chase go first because i'm gonna All get right. into a little story after that but uh there's a lot of really amazing things on this table right now i i, I imagine and hope we'll talk about each and every one of them um but that one is uh is really something else yeah super cool well if i'm being perfectly honest I put I put everything on the table, <laughs> um, literally and figuratively. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but what I came in wearing, I thought would be, as a joke, I wore a distinctly not precious metal case. I wore uh, this old Benris that I uh, that I wear usually to the Mercedes Club events that has a chrome plated base metal case, and it's just. A fun watch. It does have a stainless steel back. Mm-hmm. That watch, by the way, was also here on our first episode. Yes, that that's was right. Summer's was. wrist check. Yeah, ah, that's right. That watch. Summer oh, was wearing it. Yeah. Um, I need to set my alerts because I need the Corvette edition. And yes. I probably will never find it. There, they had a few different marks. I, 
they're not easy to come by. The problem is these were not fine watches yeah, at all. Most of them, yeah, most of them have probably been tossed by now. Yeah, but I'm going to try. Um, on my wrist is still uh, the Omega DeVille Prestige Tonneau. And um, it's on uh, uh, Hovig's uh, Shell Cordovan Horween. And it looks fantastic in yellow gold. Um, this is fitting for a lot of reasons. One, I also have, which is being returned to Chase, uh, his Omega DeVille Prestige Coaxial. Which, by the way, is, I should say, that's the appropriate wrist check because that's what's going to be on my wrist when I leave. <laughs> <laughs> even better. Even better. Uh, I think I mentioned this, maybe not, but... but Chase has been helping me I kind of hone in on what I wanted to find and ultimately settled on this on this Tonneau case, which I really love. And so to have these two pieces together is, is, is fun because I think it inspired me to, to, to find this one and, and then, you know, be able to, to reel it in. Um, but separately, so I said, I mentioned in the last episode, it's kind of a funny way how I happened to come upon this particular one, not just the model, but this particular watch. I, can't, I went into work, I was driving to work one day and I just decided after talking with Chase and, you know, a few other people and I said I'm going to make I'm going to start to make the moves to find to get that watch because this was available from an international seller big international seller a lot of people would follow them you know uh, tens of thousands of followers on Instagram but pretty reputable and they're on Chrono24 Chrono uh, but and so I said I'm going to start the WhatsApp conversation right because time difference I'm like I'm going to do it in the morning so that way I can not go back and forth and wait days in between responses and I pulled into the office settled in and for some reason I must have had my eBay page still up and as I was, I swear to you guys, as I was about to start texting the seller to say, hey, can, you know, let, let's, let's talk here. My eBay page is up and there is another of this exact watch on my page. It's about to expire in less than 24 hours. Nobody's bid on it yet. And out of the corner of my eye, which I, I can't believe I didn't recognize this earlier, there's a hang tag. On the on the list on the on the on the picture for the for the post. Oh wow! And I'm like, hmm. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Put the phone down. Make sure we know what's on the page right now. I'm gonna fast forward. Long story short, this was essentially, and I mentioned this on the last episode. I think a new old stock. I'm trying to get information from the from the seller, but I think what I understand from her is that she worked with Omega to place pieces in film, and oh. so. And as she said, after the fact, Omega would just leave the pieces. They were not concerned about bringing them about you know bringing them back into their inventory and so i don't know where where this was placed or maybe it wasn't or what have you but she you know acquired a, a number of seamasters a couple x33s i don't know which gen yet hmm. uh, a couple of these devilles and uh and now she's you know letting them go to fund you know some other things travel or whatever but but essentially it sat in her you know somewhere in her drawer uh for 20 odd years and uh and now it's here and it was local-ish is in california so it's easier than dealing with customs and 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 then you know like you said yeah. it's just been well cared for actually it hasn't been hasn't been touched really. So what you're saying is it fell off the truck. Fell off the truck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with no dings. <laughs> right. With no dings. Well, yeah, um, very well padded pack. Very well. In bubble wrap. So that was that was sort of the longer story that I didn't have a chance to share last last week. But again, it's even better to tell it with Chase here because he's been sort of my my guru on on making this one happen and. And gave me the inspiration on letting me wear his Deville uh, for some time. So we're here uh, to talk about, like Chase already mentioned, precious, but also just alternative metals and materials in wristwatches. And I hate saying this, but it's the easiest way to say it. They're kind of having a moment, right? In, in terms of 
mass appeal. I, I think are. people like Chase and, and others have always appreciated, I think, gold and, and other materials. But right now, it seems like they're sort of really coming back up again, in my opinion. And I think that's what makes this conversation really interesting. And so I, I just thought for the better part of, I don't know, I'm actually going to pose this sort of as a question too, maybe two decades, maybe longer, um, steel, in particular steel sports watches, have really surged. I mean, they have been sort of the go-to for manufacturers, collectors. It just feels that way. Um, but very recently, it does seem that gold, two-tone, and other precious metals are becoming vogue again um, from a ma mass market angle, not not to collectors. Collectors have always had their, you know, sort of, uh, you know, preferences. But but what do you guys think of that? Is that true? Does that ring true to you? Do you, do you, do you find something to poke holes in that? I would I would actually revise the statement and make it more general. I think that I think people now are willing to look at color, mm. and I think we see that not just in the metals but also with what's going on in dials. I think really what I think the 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 moment that the precious metals are having is more of a uh, an indication of a, this broader trend. That's interesting. So dial color, in addition to just color in general, which includes metals, but also dial colors. Because I don't think that, <clears throat> sorry, I don't think people were averse to titanium or white gold. You might have to have another sip of wine. Yeah. <laughs> I tell you what, I'm going I'm to jump in and throw out a quick thought real fast. But it seemed to me like, you know, five to ten years ago when vintage was super huge. And I mean, to, in, in its own corners, vintage is still super huge. But steel vintage, especially, you know, the big names, so, you know, Rolex, AP, et cetera, um, commanded a huge premium over steel and gold, mm -hmm. and in some cases even over gold. And, you know, just because they were kind of the more sought-after cool thing. Right. And I wonder if, I, this is what I just wondered, if, if some people who were, you know, maybe not money's no object type people, but they still wanted to participate, if they... And I'm making air quotes here. If they settled for steel and gold, bought it, started wearing it around, started being seen again, and you know suddenly it's like, hey, this has always been kind of palatable. Mm -hmm. I mean, if it's if it's to your taste, why not precious? So anyway, sorry. I see you've, no, you've composed yourself. You've yeah. had you've had a glass of wine. <laughs> You're good to go. Finish your. It's very important. I I need this to run. Um. I don't think there was an aversion to, for example, white gold or platinum or necessarily titanium. I think for, mo for most people, though, they just, their, their knowledge is probably limited to the point where they think of, oh, white is steel, or maybe they even think of silver. But for, I think for a lot of people, their, their thought process, which I certainly understand, is why would I get, why would I pay for white gold? If I'm going to pay for gold, I want it to be yellow or rose, yeah. which I think is one of the reasons why specifically then platinum is so uncommon. I think the number of people who actually want stealth is quite small. That's a good point. That's a good point. You know, the stealth wealth is a smaller minority than sort of the louder, you know, check this out sort of mentality. Right. I, I, I very much find that to be true because I think also if that were not the case you would the the white gold for example GMTs or the white gold subs would have been much more popular if it was simply a color question yeah yeah so 
you know, I think we've already established then that these materials have always existed. Well, not always, but for long enough, many of them long enough. Do you think the rise of sports watches, which I think Matt, you sort of just hit on, did that sort of see, did that sort of accelerate to a, a larger, to a, a higher degree than, I feel like dress watches sort of took a backseat for a long time. And everything's been sports watch, sports watch, sports watch. And there's very, there's less alternative medals in sports watch than there would be on a dress. Is that true? Or what do you guys think about that? That's a, that, I, I would say that's a maybe. Mm -hmm. Because if we think of a lot of the sports watches that are out there, they were traditionally available, at least in the, in the high-end sports watches. So if you're looking at um, either the, we just, if we just look at Nautilus, Royal Oak, and 222, mm -hmm. just, just those. Um, those have been available in, besides steel, they have inc included all of the gold colors and platinum and tantalum for some of them. And I think potentially titanium as well. So whether or not, I, I don't know if it's directly correlated, but for sure, if you, actually, kind of case in point, Vacheron just re-released the 222. Which is one of my favorite of the recent only, only in gold. Yeah. Yeah. Good that, move, by the way. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's a stunner. When I saw that, Absolutely. I was like, what? Exactly. That, that is magnificent. I think I sent out a, a picture, like, in the group chat you of me, like, you know, just my POV view, like, holding a cup of coffee, the iPad, I'm in bed. <laughs> it was like... This this Hold is, me. This is gonna end up on like a, a like a porn hub, yeah. watch hub, watch POV, hub. <laughs> watch, watch only fans. Yeah, it's okay. We put explicit on all these episodes. That's, that's right. That's right. But um, yeah, that sorry that that watch is amazing. Do you think they'll end up releasing it in in steel and other things eventually as well? I maybe. So part of me says why not. Because they they have the um, uh, the overseas, which obviously is available in steel, and it's difficult to get in steel. I don't I don't know. I'm sure it will come down to whether or not they think there is enough of a demand, or whether or not they're afraid it might dilute that particular model. Here's the the other thing: that watch really does look better in gold because the gold can be finished much more nicely than steel can. That brings us to, I think, a few pieces that you actually brought along and a point that you brought up earlier as we were prepping is how you can finish metals. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that we should, I'm sure we'll touch on, is just a very mechanical and practical you know, properties of the metal and how they respond to the environment or your skin, durability, etc. But one of the things to consider also is what what a metal is best uh, or what a metal lends itself to very well. So I brought a couple of pieces to show the possibility of metalworking when you're dealing with, for example, gold, or the same would apply to platinum or to silver even. Mm -hmm. it, they are they are less brittle. They can be worked more easily, and so you can see more advanced finishing techniques on these kinds of metals. Again, I, I'll say precious because 
it just so happens that precious metals generally are softer, um, and they're also much more inert. So, for example, with whether it's gold or or platinum is is almost completely pure, so it supplies less so. But with gold, any of the tarnishing or aging that you'll see is actually the aging of the alloy components, not mm, of the gold itself. Okay. Interestingly, the same goes for silver. So when you're looking at tarnished silver, it's not actually the silver that's tarnishing, it's the alloying components that are tarnishing. That's interesting. Yeah. I, would, I did not realize that. Yeah, that makes sense though, when you think about it. Because it's, I think, you know, right, the heavier the metal, the more relatively inert. Mm -hmm. And so there are alloys of silver that I, I'm trying to recall if they're incorporating palladium or platinum I think it may actually be platinum, where they're using platinum as an alloying material for the silver because it then will not tarnish. So you're, they've created a superior alloy. And I wouldn't be entirely surprised if the Tudor Black Bay that's in sterling mm -hmm. is, a, is a different sterling alloy that simply won't tarnish or is much more resistant to it. That's what they're saying. I mean, I don't know anybody who has one to be able to that. say, hey, how, how has it really gone on over the past, say, year since that was released? Mm -hmm. You know, I imagine it probably goes a little, but probably not too much in the direction of, you know, full-on tarnish the way you'd see, you know, your grandmother's silver set. Right. Mm -hmm. But that's a fascinating kind of thing, so... We'll have to see. We'll have to find out. Yeah. If anybody, you know, you know who else would be fun to have at this table right now would be Buzz mm. from Whiskey and Watches. Talk about, uh, you know, materials, properties, strength of materials. Yeah. Buzz, we'll, we'll hit you up later. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just uh, I, I think you're probably right. And I would also not be surprised to find out that there's platinum in that alloy for that that Tudor, the uh Black Bay, what is it, the Black Bay 925? I think that's what yes. it's called. Yeah. Which, um, if we're talking about different alloys, that's one of the reasons why I traditionally don't like white gold, and actually I don't like making jewelry out of it, is that it relies, most white gold alloys rely heavily on nickel as an alloy right, material. Right. So you end up, while, while people like it, and they will say it's a good alternative to platinum because it's harder. The issue you run into is that it is probably the most problematic in terms of a skin allergy because nickel is yeah. going to create, it's going to be the most problematic for people to wear it. A and B, most white gold, not all, and certainly not the white gold that's traditionally used in watches, needs to be rhodium plated to make it white. Uh, the exceptions, one of the notable exceptions really being Omega, and that they're using their Canopus, what they call Canopus, right. um, not to make it any less special, it's very good, but palladium white gold is something that's existed for a long time. So using palladium as one of the alloying, uh, right. alloying metals in the white gold that makes a, a nice whiter color, but also one that then doesn't need to be rhodium plated. And is ah. friendly to your skin. Yeah, yeah. So you don't have the the reaction. I can actually see here. Yeah. But that's I brought that for that exact purpose. So how would you describe this this piece, Jace? Uh, well, so that's an. It's that, pretty unique. That is unique. It's an. It's a 
from a company called Bushiro, which I don't believe exists anymore. They had done some, I would say they're fairly high-end pieces of different radiator grill watches. So I know that they had done Mercedes, which is what, what we have here. They also did some for Rolls-Royce, I think also for Fiat, um, possibly Corvette, I am not sure. But they had done a number of different pieces, and they made them, in this case, out of 18 karat white gold. One of the things I was pointing out is there is actually the standing star for on a classic Mercedes grill as part of this case design. And I believe that one of the reasons why they chose white gold is that to achieve the finish and the precision on there would have been very difficult with steel. Mm -hmm. Not to mention that steel is going to be a bit more brittle. So I don't know about the longevity of that. Yeah, for, for people listening, this watch... The, the case of the watch, if you're looking at it straight on as if it laid on your wrist, basically looks like they've lifted the entire sort of the grill and the grill like surround, the radiator surround from the front fascia like of, of the car as you would see it. And there's this kind of, you know, cross-haired or cross-hatched uh, kind of grid pattern that makes up the dial. And then literally at 12 o'clock, there's like a an embossed little, you know, probably three millimeters across Mercedes hood ornament. And then above that, again, at 12 o'clock, it's, as you say, it's like the actual, like the floating three-pointed star as part of the, basically as part of the lug. Mm -hmm. There's, it's an invisible lug, but it's, uh, it's, this is an interesting thing. I've never seen it. Yeah. I've never seen that. They've done the, uh, they've done the date really well too. The the date window is nicely recessed and it's kind of like three part kind of drop down. And is this entire case white gold? Yes. Yeah, it's it's neat. So that's a that's a fun one for sure. And this is a hand cranker. Uh, no, that's actually automatic. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I believe it's an A shield movement in there. And okay. The oh. the number escapes me at the moment. The specific caliber, but I believe it's an A shield movement that's been branded Bushy Road. So speaking of why the reason they use white gold potentially to achieve what they sought out to achieve on that design. We were looking at before we started, before we pressed record, some yellow gold that they achieved. I think some things that were not would not have been possible, of course, using steel. Right. So uh, I brought a couple of examples. One, the the one that's very interesting is an old uh, Patek ellipse that has the bracelet and dial in a somewhat. It's not exactly a hammered finish. They actually. The, they have a name for it, specifically this finish they called Freneli, which is a, apparently a, a local term for the old Swiss franc coins, the way they hammered those old coins. So it's a, I would almost call it like, I don't know, it's almost a hammered finish. Right. And the dial and the bracelet are done in the same finish, and what they've done is they've taken like a, a mesh bracelet, but the overlay is done in a layer of gold, and they've created really what are invisible links. So you just have the, a continuous finish all the way around the bracelet, and with the exception of the bezel really on the case that's visible, then the dial has the exact same finish, and it's done in the same 18 karat gold material. And I was explaining before, this would be difficult to impossible to achieve with steel 
because it's it's simply too hard and too brittle to create something like this that would also have the longevity. So sometimes actually having a softer, more ductile material is then more robust mm. than, a, than a harder, more brittle one, depending on what it is that you're making. Right. Yeah, and for people, again, um, you know, we're not in a, in a visual medium here, but if you're familiar with the Patek Philippe, the Beta 21, you know, it's, it's a very similar, the watch that we're looking at here is very similar in terms of its overall aesthetic and vibe and probably of the same era, but this is a, a little bit smaller. Um, certainly, uh, the, the bracelet component of it's a little bit narrower and it's not perforated like the Beta 21 right. style, but this thing is really really cool this is very sophisticated it is very heavy i mean relative to how thin this thing is and um this is one of the my favorite things i've ever seen from patek philippe ever wow like in terms oh, of just you. how well because again you know the the craftsmanship is so unique and the the physical presentation of this thing is so unique um i like it quite a bit just but you know by comparison there's um a Calatrava here as well. Again, another gold Calatrava. And between the two, I mean, this is certainly the Calatrava's more, um, you know, conventional <laughs> in appearance. It's probably more, you know, utilitarian in me would probably want this. But, you know, this full gold, gold bracelet piece to me is just, it's a stunning. What I like about that is I think it really embodies, it's, it's, some of the art in watchmaking. This is when, right. you, if you say to somebody, show me what you can do, producing something like this, with especially then with the ultra slim caliber and creating the entire piece around it is is no small feat. There's, it's quite frankly why I'm, I'm sure they've discontinued this caliber for many years. It's, it's a, a lot of extra money to pay where most people, most people don't probably appreciate what extra slim means. Yeah. Sorry, we got to talk oh. this up. Oh, of course. We, it's a little bit this uh, Everybody important. on this pod understands. There's there's we, we stop for drinking. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> this is a little Now you have another gold bracelet. There we go. Uh that's quite unique as well. So I brought this because um I was apologizing to our gracious hosts. I know I don't like to bring things that can't be handled, but that particular patek is still vacuum sealed from them. So I happen to have a ladies, a new old stock, ladies Concord, that when Concord was kind of a high-end brand, sure. with a very fine, I, I'm almost not sure what to call this, it, to me it looks like, if you can imagine like a grass wallpaper or, or like, like a thatched kind of, you know, uh, brushed bracelet finish. This one you can see is not executed at the same level, but also would would be more difficult to execute at the same level because this watch is made out of 14 karat gold, mm -hmm. which is going to be a little bit harder. And yes, maybe a little bit uh, harder, less, will stretch less, but also is not going to lend itself to the kind of these very subtle finishing techniques that require greater variation in press pressure because it simply won't respond to the lower echelons of pressure when you're when you're working it by hand that the softer materials will. Can you tell us a little more about the carrots? We were talking about that as we prepped too and I think you have several examples of yellow gold. 
one of the things I tried to bring, because people, of course, will be familiar with 18 karat gold or 14, but there have been various caratages used all the way from, I think really on the low end, I think 9 karat traditionally is the lowest purity of gold or the lowest content of gold that was allowed to be sold as gold until just recently. So I have a 9 karat gold piece here, um, and you can see the difference in color. Mm -hmm dramatically between the nine there's also a 14 karat gold i brought a uh, rolex uh, reference 1005 which is an oyster perpetual no date in 14 karat that really has pretty significantly oxidized probably more than just about anything else here mm -hmm. it has darkened dramatically um, even though it has much more of a gold saturation as it should than the nine karat and it's more similar to the 18 karat, but it's hard to tell because it's so dark. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I'm surprised at how warm the, the 9 karat is, never having seen, you know, except, you know, the, the most recent, again, the Tudor. Is it Tudor? Am I, am I mistaking the, that? They have, Omega. That, yes, thank you. The Omega re-released That's it. right. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> I knew I was making a mistake there as I said it. I saw one of those in the wild recently. And it's a, a really cool-looking watch on wrist. It's a shame there's not a bracelet for that. Yes. But uh, this this Omega, so this is the Omega, this is the, um, what's what's the nomenclature for this? Well, it's a, it's a Denison-cased Omega. Okay. Um, so Omega themselves, it, it, the reference, I believe, is 1337, or it might be three threes. It's either 1337 or 1337. But it's a caliber 283, which is the newer name for the caliber 30T that's been around forever. So it's, um, and it's, this was made during a time, and actually this, this happened with many different countries for a much longer period of time. But based on the tax laws in various countries, the, the tariff on importing a movement mm was different than the tariff for a completed watch. And so, in this case, the movements were sold to England, and they had their distributor and partner there, in this case it was Denison, do the casing. So the case, dial, hands, all of the, all of the additional components were manufactured in England under, you know, what is it, under a direction or, or under license from Omega. Yeah, it's a, that's a cool watch. It's um, there's a, a Denison Case Omega is referenced in a one of the most recent James Bond um, books. So you know, obviously not a, not one of the movies, not the Ian Fleming, but you know how there are a number of mm -hmm. sort of approved authors. Yes, um, and I the name of that book escapes me, but I remember reading that and thinking of that watch. I know you've had this one for a while. So anyway, enough about that. But but the the nine carat and the fourteen carat, there does not seem to be a massive difference visually the way I thought there would be. I mean, there's there's still a nice kind of warmth and a luxurious feel about that nine carat. I like the color a lot, actually. It's I would agree with you. It's definitely warm. It has a bit of a pinkish hue. If I were to compare it to their modern what they call bronze gold, but oh, nine, the nine mm -hmm. carat gold. Um, this, the modern one I believe is 
pinker and probably has a little bit more color saturation but then again we're talking about a watch that is now 72 years old right versus one that's brand new so i would look at that watch and think that that was probably just kind of you know tarnished and needs to be cleaned up and it's 14 karat gold whereas that the bronze gold omega looks to me like rosy it's basically well it's i it looks to me like bronze mm-hmm. you know it, it does not really look like a gold watch in any way at least not to my eye this one does anyway let's talk two-tone Yes, let's please, because that's my favorite. So, you know, <laughs> two-tone's interesting, right? I think it's pretty polarizing, I think, in general. Two-tone is interesting, <laughs> definitely. I feel like there's, I've heard a lot of people say, oh my gosh, growing up in whatever, the 80s or the 90s, or you know, I can't stomach two-tone, or sometimes just yellow gold in general, but two-tone is just too loud, and it's, I feel like I had an, un- an ironic appreciation for a while, and it's becoming unironically in again, what do you guys think about two-tone? Where are we at with two-tone? I know we have some cool things on the table right now. So I've always said, why not? There's, there's, there is a, there's a technical reason why two-tone can be an issue, and it's then specifically with steel and gold. You can actually get some electrolysis going on if you don't keep your watch clean, and you can get the metals that are actually are going to basically disintegrate each other a little bit. You're talking about a lot of wear and a lot of neglect in order for that to happen. Either that or you just have a very peculiar chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> which, chemistry. which you might. You might. Which you might. Who knows? Yeah. Nothing wrong with peculiar chemistries. <laughs> well, I, I personally think that I, my gravitation toward two-tone watches is not that they're, it's the two-tonedness that I like. It's, mm. it's the watch themselves. I, I tend to like that watch in any, you know, if, if I like it in two-tone, I probably like it in every sort of physical expression. Oh, I see. So, you know, the watches that I like, and they tend to be a little sportier, you know, so they tend to be the things like, you know, a steel and gold Submariner, a steel mm. and gold um, Seamaster. I have my old, this is, this was sort of my entree to watches, yeah. or at least real, real kind of you know, mechanical Swiss watches, and this thing is about 25 years old, and this is the, a Tag Heuer reference of 4,000. Mm-hmm. And this uh, is on a, on a strap now, but it, it was on a, you know, kind of a matte media blasted steel, and uh, it had a, you know, gold-plated kind of center link, and it's got, you know, the gold accents. I think that the bezel itself is gold, and the crown is plated. I think this is a PVD coating here. And I think it's a little plate around, but you know, just a real thin plate. But um, I still have the bracelet. You know, it actually it broke. I had I'm missing a pin. Um, but even you know, after like 25 years, it's still physically in really good shape um, with just a tiny bit of cleaning. That tells me that there may be possibly the world's tiniest gold, you know, in in there. But then again, <laughs> maybe not. But it's the um, this was sort of the, the thing, you know, that pulled me in. And these were definitely, you know, big in the 80s and 90s. For yeah. me, it's not an ironic thing. I think we mentioned this before. Like, to right. me, this was not ironically cool. I, I remember these watches and wore it in the era. And I like them. It does seem like they're, they're having a bit of a comeback in some respects. I totally want another. And I can think of two or three. We've talked several times, Chase and I and Greg mm-hmm. and I. You know, some flavor of uh, steel and gold Seamaster or possibly a steel and gold, um, 
I mean, if I really got crazy, a steel and gold GMT master, if I just threw everything to the wind and sold well, a bunch the of stuff. Well, there's the Tudor, too. I did see that. <laughs> I did see that, yeah. And I don't hate it. At least I don't think I do. It looks good. I agree. You know, speaking of two-tone, going back to the 222, right. I think that's a watch that would look fantastic in multiple colors. Oh, yeah. Did it... Um... Was there a reference that was steel and gold in its pre in its original iteration? I haven't. I I want to say yes, but I can't actually visualize it. I can't remember seeing one. I would be shocked if there isn't. Yeah. Because it really seems to lend itself particularly well. I actually think, on on that same note, I think that some of the better looking two tone watches are also the the Nautilus and the Royal Oak. A lot of people, of course, think of Rolexes in two-tone, and that's kind of where everyone goes, but I don't necessarily think those are the best-looking two-tone watches. Mm -hmm. I think that the Royal Oak, whether it's the steel and gold, or whether it's, for example, the, um, the gold and tantalum that they did, or the tantalum and steel, those, those case and bracelet architectures really just are perfectly suited to using multiple materials. And I think the 222 would fall squarely into that category. Well, speaking of 222 and squarely, right? I mean, I think most people think of 222, if it's not something you're super familiar with, you know, you tend to think of the classic shape that sort of mimics the others. But the 222 is available in a variety of shapes. Right. And some of those, because they made it in a variety of shapes, it, I would expect that deep in the catalog you might find two-tone. I mean, this is purely speculation on my part, but... You know, they did it in a variety of presentations, and I wouldn't be surprised, especially because that was kind of a thing back then. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that would be an amazing, an amazing find. Talk about ultimate potential barn find watches. Totally agree. Do you guys try to find any truth to the adage? I feel like I've, I have heard this. I appreciated gold more when I reached my insert age. My 30s, my 40s, my 50s. You know, I, like, like there's almost this like invisible like hurdle or, you know, like a, a level of, of age that, you, that people reach. They said, oh, wait, no, no, no. I do like gold. Right. I think so. I mean, I was aware of gold watches as a thing, you know, as a kid. But I was also aware that that was not appropriate for me. One way or another, you know what I mean? I mean, not, not in... Jeez, like he almost, spit out, he almost spit out his wine. But, you know, I mean, when I was in high school, I knew I wouldn't wear a watch like the college robber. Mm -hmm. If somebody gave it to me, it would, I, I knew even with my sort of limited sensibilities and, and sense of style or whatever, you know, at 14 or 15, that I, I, this is not something you just put on with shorts and a t-shirt and go to high school unless you are really wealthy. Okay. Um, but... You know, now, I mean, I think there is something to that, that whole age and, and maturity thing because you're maybe at a place in life where you have a, a job or a, you know, a vocation where your, your day-to-day existence is such that that kind of looks right or feels right for you. Um, I think gold sports watches are probably a little bit different, you know, probably a little bit more accessible at an early age. But I think there is something to that, you know, kind of aging into the gold watch experience. At least for me. Yeah. Well, not surprisingly, I'll, I'll be the exception here. <laughs> Yellow, but uh, here's the explanation. Yellow has always been my favorite color since 
infancy, basically. No kidding. Yellow. yellow. My, my son's favorite color right now is yellow, and it's been that way for a while. Like, at a first, you know, they change color, favorite colors for, oh, one day it's black, one day mm -hmm. it's bright. He's been yellow. He's been a yellow guy for, like, a significant amount of time now. So th this is interesting. So, uh, and uh, interestingly, also, there was a time where I really also liked black, and I still do. I mean, it's a, but yellow has always been my favorite color, and it's not, shouldn't be surprising that there are a couple watches here that have yellow and black in them. Um, but I think that's also why it's not really a big jump to gold from, from yellow. yellow. And so, yeah, really, I liked gold watches when I was little. I, uh, I'll actually tell you a funny story. Um, my father was in the jewelry business, and, I, and he would, for a long time, he wore a two-tone Datejust. And then at some point, he started wearing a steel Submariner. And I was, I was so upset. I was so annoyed. I thought, why, do you, why are you wearing that watch? That's such a crappy, boring-looking watch. And, How dare you? And, and he said to me, well... I feel attacked. <laughs> and he said to me, well, this one was really cheap because the dial is damaged. Reed, it's a, it was crazed. It was a spider dial. Back mm. when that was... So he bought it for, for a significant discount. A degradation was, of material. Because it was a, a quote, defective watch. <laughs> you know, back then when that was just considered to be undesirable. And for a long time he wore that. And I remember it, at some point for a short time, um, I think he was sourcing... For a client, a gold Daytona. I remember it, and he, a couple of times he wore it, and I was so happy. And I was like, "There, that's that's finally you're wearing a good-looking watch. What the hell are you wearing, doing with all this steel crap?" <laughs> you know, this is me probably at 10 years old. But yes, I I love gold. It's not, it is not, you know, in any way Fablanian or an attempt to show off. I like the color. I yellow is my favorite color. It still is. I, you guys are gonna, I'm gonna die when we get off of this. Literally, my son walks. He's, he's three, right? So I'm, he walks around. And he just goes, "Yellow is my favorite color." And this most like deadpan, monotone <laughs> thing. And you just said exactly what he said. This is gonna be him in in you know X number of years. This there you was, go. Yeah. He's destined to work in the jewelry business. Well, I remember on on an, I think a relatively early episode of the On Time podcast, and you guys were talking about. I don't remember what the the subject was but you talked about how much you love precious mm. and specifically that was the first time i'd ever heard of the tridor oh and yeah how you how my you know, favorite you, rolex yeah you really like the tridor presentation and that's such a cool and i have to agree i mean having seen that and you know where i kind of almost see something vaguely similar is in the um the limited edition steel and or uh, i think it's i don't know if it's steel i think it's titanium the titanium and precious metal Seamaster. It's titanium and tantalum and tantalum and rose gold and yeah and it's awesome. Oh my yeah. lord! Yeah, and that yeah. that gives me the the Tridor vibes totally. whenever I see that thing. So I I like that watch a lot. I I imagine you do too. Very very much. Let's shift a little bit then because that's a good actually a segue to something I think we wanted to talk about too. What are what are some like alternative metals or other very cool precious metals we just you just named a few that are being used or that you like to see used what else is i mean we've talked a lot about gold right gold yeah. uh even silver what else is out there well platinum's probably the big one i'd say for watches unless you're looking at 100 year old pocket watches silver is pretty uncommon yeah. with watches and we're just now starting to see that really with the 
we have to thank Tudor for bringing silver back. Not that there were other companies doing it. There were there there have often been throughout the decades a couple of pieces here and then done in silver. Um, but now I think maybe this will get it more attention. Another one is um, tantalum, which mm. is very dark, like almost black naturally metal, very heavy metal. I feel like I always think of Jorn when I think of tantalum. Yes. Yeah. Actually, the, the one the one I think of really is the Royal Oak. Mm -hmm. Even though they were very limited production, the there was a tantalum and steel, and then also a rose gold. I believe it was rose and tantalum, not yellow and tantalum. Uh, that I think are just out of the park, you know, versions of the Royal Oak. I think Panerai also. Mm -hmm. Hopefully mm -hmm. that's not a turd to punch bowl for anybody, but you know, <laughs> a, a, a tantalum uh, Panerai I think would be pretty awesome. I knew somebody who had one of those. The the issue with tantalum really, like I said, is that it's very heavy. So you want it to be on a watch. I you, you want to use it judiciously either on a watch that's slim and not too big, or in reserved amounts, like, for example, Omega did. Mm -hmm. The Omega's using tantalum more as an accent material along with the rose gold. So the two heavy metals are the accents, and the majority of, the, uh, of that um, you know, watch body is then done in titanium, make right. it lighter and really more wearable. What about bronze? I, w I feel like, and I don't want to put you on the spot, I feel like you're not a huge bronze fan. I, honestly, I, I'm not, and I know I, I love your bronze watch. But you, don't, you don't have to be you don't have to be uh, appreciative of it. You but, know, like you can lay into it. But I, I'll, I'll be honest. I don't really understand why. Yeah. And so just just to cover it, the one of the issues with bronze is that it is also it's going to be very difficult to live with if you ever need to refinish or do work on it. Because you obviously, if you do any work, it's going to you're going to lose the the color in that area because it's bronze is primarily copper, mm -hmm. copper tin, a couple of their alloys. So it's it's highly reactive to the environment and it will change over time, which some people like. But then I look at well, are you going to like that forever? Yeah, right. And and then what if you need to do some, re what if you need to restore the case? Like, what if you've actually really damaged it and you need to laser weld? Not fun. Yeah, that's not going to be easily done. Because the melting point's so low. Um, I'll, I'll address bronze in another way. One of the reasons why gold-filled watches are so problematic is that the cores are oftentimes bronze or brass. Well, same, same, same Did difference. not know that, okay. Yeah. Um, not always. So there were some that were steel with a gold cap, and but probably the majority are brass or bronze with gold cap on top. And once you break through the gold, the, the core will start to deteriorate because you, you've exposed it and broke the seal, so to speak. Now, normally, I shouldn't say normally, but if you were just trying to replace some gold, you could laser fill it in. But if you laser fill and melt gold on top of the bronze, it will melt the bronze away because it has a much lower melting point. So case restoration on essentially the cheaper watches is much, much, much more difficult and much more costly than doing a, 
any sort of case restoration on simply a precious metal piece. Mm -hmm. Because now you're asking someone to work with two materials at once. In this case, I realize that's not the case. You're working with one material, but you're still dealing with all of the properties of bronze that whether it's from a refinishing perspective, for example, you can't, you can't really touch it up if you think about that. You touch up one, you touch up one spot, it'll forever be different. So you, it's an all or nothing kind of proposal at any sort of cosmetic intervention. Sure, sure. So that's my trying to be just very objective because I do like the I do like it. It actually looks fantastic. <laughs> That's it, an interesting it, point. So you actually, you can appreciate it aesthetically, but when you think about from your sort of, you know, long-term planning and, 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 and care of the watch perspective and, and the metal, metallurgy, you have concerns about the actual use of it in watchmaking. And so that's also why I like, I like the, as Omega calls it, the bronze gold, the nine karat gold. I like it because I like the color, but I'm not concerned about it changing dramatically i'm not concerned about workability issues it seems to be it, it's going to be a more stable alloy because they have used i believe they use silver in the alloy so it's gold silver and some copper to get the pink hue and, and some other metals um but it it really does matter kind of coming back to where we started it matters what the alloy is in terms of how it's going to behave in the long term but it's it Fundamentally, I think it's the attraction is not the material properties, but the color. Right. I, I yeah, that's that. an aesthetic choice for sure, right? Yeah. And, and I think it, the and, and at the speed to which it changes, right? Because right. we're looking at we're looking at amazing patina over 20, 30, 40, 50 years on some of these other pieces, and you you see you know patina yeah. in you know six months or so, less, right? Yeah. I mean, this watch is a year and a half. Yeah. So just for the sake of accuracy, the the Oyster Perpetual is from 1963, and the Denison is cased in 1950, according to the hallmarks. Hmm. Yeah, so you get a sense, really, like looking kind of traveling through time based on the degree of like patination. But yep. that, I, yeah, I don't know. I think the coolest thing about this, frankly, is just how interesting everything looks. Yeah. As well, an alternative the, to summer's gonna hate me, you know, steel or, or titanium, which we haven't talked about. That. No, we haven't. We're about to. Summer's gonna hate me, but I remember at one point, maybe before I bought the the Oris, mm -hmm. uh, I think I said to him something like, "How many stainless steel sports watches can you really have?" Mm -hmm. And he looked at me deadpan. He said, "As many as possible." <laughs> and I, but yeah. I, I just—it was my inflection point where I was like, "Oh my gosh!" But look how colorful this table is right now. Like, look how much right. fun and interesting things are out there. And for me personally. There's, only, there's a finite number of stainless steel that I can have before I need other things. You're, you're preaching to the choir. So <laughs> I, you brought up titanium, probably one of my favorite materials. That I did not know. It, it's, it's fantastic. I will say, I'll start with the worst part. The worst part is that it's so hard, you can't really do interesting finishes with it. So you're, you're somewhat limited but also not. It's it's a very hard material to finish. Similar platinum is very difficult to finish. It has to be done at low, low speeds and low temperatures. Um, titanium also is very finicky. But to me, titanium is everything that people like about steel. But it's just even better. It's naturally 
anti-corrosive inert, whereas steel needs to be, you know, it depends on the alloy. You don't have to worry about, about the alloy specific or about the addition of nickel, which is used in steel. It's, it's like naturally better, it's lighter. I think it's interesting that it's darker. To me, I think titanium works better as a, in a multicolored um, scenario. So if you're going to add, let's say gold, or it's interesting that Seiko did this because I had always wanted to have a watch that was titanium and platinum together. But Seiko did this, their, their new release of the, uh, the tourbillon with the remontoire is a titanium and platinum case. Oh, you know, I, I have to look closer at that because I've, I've seen the announcement and people going bonkers and I didn't really realize what was going on. Yeah, me either. That's really neat. So to me, though, those are things I would like. I would, for example, I would combine titanium and let's say throw in platinum there and maybe maybe even gold to, if to add color because you <laughs> this have is crazy yeah, you can, <laughs> you, i love it you, the nice thing because titanium is with titanium and platinum you're going to get a wonderful or titanium and silver hypothetically it's they're they're monochromatic but they're different enough that it's just going to be this beautiful variation in color so imagine what you're seeing now just between the matte and polished surfaces but the way I would this platinum is just going to be much brighter. It's a very, it's a, it, it's a gray white metal, but it's much whiter than the titanium. Yeah. Well, in case in point, so Greg is, uh, he's got the the Grand Seiko. This is the SBGA four one three, the the spring dial season watch, and this is executed in titanium case and titanium bracelet, and it does. I mean, compared to you know. A lot of titanium sports watches. I mean, there's a huge difference, right, between because this is also titanium, yes, correct. Mm -hmm. So, like, yeah, look at look at how this is a Seiko kinetic from you know dark, 2000, give or take. Dark this is versus this, and you know you mentioned you know how it, difficult it can be to work with in the finishing, but Seiko's with the Zeratsu polishing there that you know that tin plate polish really brings out a mirror shine on the Grand Seiko. So, which is also why this is not polished. Mm -hmm. Yep. Because it's, it's just far more difficult. If this, the steel version of this watch probably is polished. Yeah. It's very difficult right. to polish, yeah. to polish titanium well. Yeah. Yeah. Quick wine break. Matt. Yes. Do we open up uh, uh, on the flavor profiles here? What, yeah, what's your I think take so. now, what, I, 30, 40 minutes in? I, I think it has. Um, I will get like this little kind of sensation at the back and the sides of my tongue and this that you know doesn't have that anymore I think that's kind of gone away but I still think this is um, again if you could take like a, a fresh croissant put a little bit of butter and honey on this and, and pour it in a glass that's kind of what you're getting in terms of you know it's just a little yeasty it's a little dry compared to a typical American like premium Chardonnay um, and definitely there's a good mineral quality in the background what do you think? So we're, we're, what I'm getting, and I love this, is there's a there's a brightness in the acidity, and I find a lot of New World and California Chardonnays. There are plenty of exceptions, but a lot of them tend to be weighed down with fruit and oak and overly done butter. It's they're just like they become overloaded, right? And Chardonnay. 
can and should be a really elegant wine, even though it's certainly one of the, the most full-bodied of the whites. There is a lot of potential character if you allow it to express itself. So I'm getting some really nice citrus notes on here, but less of less of really like a juicy citrus and more like imagine if you took took like a rind oh, and yeah yes. it's more of the, the aromatic sensation exactly you express that yeah yeah not the so you know uh, the bite of key lime pie right exactly so i'm getting like a zest almost almost even like like the like an essential oil touch if you had to just talk about like some citrus rind in there Tell me your guys' favorite places to go. I've been to, not all, a ton, but I've been to, you know, I've done Temecula. We're in California, right? So there's a lot of, there's a lot here. I've been to yep. Temecula, been to Santa Barbara and San yep. Inez. Uh, been down to Valle Guadalupe. Yep. Been to Napa, done Central Coast. What do you guys love? Where do you, where are you guys going to, you know? Well, I'm biased. I mean, I, yeah. I yeah. like Central Coast um, basically, uh, Really, anything pretty much north of Santa Barbara, up to Paso Robles. Oh, you were, well, and we've discussed this before. We <laughs> we have very similar tastes. <laughs> yeah, I mean Napa Napa is great, and arguably, I mean as a as a destination for somebody who's really into wine or wine and food, I mean Napa is better. It just is, but yeah. it's also it's way more expensive. It's way more crowded. It's it intimidating. Is, it I'll is, tell you, as, as a as a novice, it's intimidating. Yeah, it is way more pretentious. Um, and you know the idea that you know it's it's extremely difficult to taste in some places, um, so it's one of those things where it's just not particularly welcoming. And it, in my opinion, it kind of shuts off what should be you know a, a nice kind of enjoying enjoyment of life. A what's the word? A bon vivant kind of a thing. Bon vivant. Right. Bon yeah. <laughs> so um, that's why I like. Central Coast is just my thing. I have family there. We go there probably three, four, five, six times a year for like 25 years. Yeah. And, you know, we're I'm going there next week. And we'll taste and there's, you know, fantastic stuff up there. So I, I, I'm going to echo a lot of what Matt said. But understand, there's a bias. Um, I, I'll also say I love off, let's say, off-region European wines. There's some great stuff there. There really is, like um, if, uh, South Tyrol. You know, if you call, it, if you're saying speaking Italian, Alto Adige. If you're speaking German, South South Tyrol, South Tyrol. Wonderful winemaking region. Not particularly recognized. Great stuff coming out of Austria and Germany and Alsace. Not everything is going to be a Rhone or Burgundy. There's great. There is great wine everywhere. And there's mediocre wine everywhere. There's plenty of mediocre wine in Napa and Sonoma. Mm -hmm. And to to Matt's point, there's a lot of expensive mediocre wine there too. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think yeah, and ultimately that's really, you know, sort of the what you're probably going to experience if you're the you know an average consumer if you go to Napa. Yeah, is a lot of uh, you know expensive 20, mediocre tw twenty five to thirty dollar bottles of wine with you know seventy nine to one hundred and twenty nine dollar price tags mm -hmm. easily mm -hmm. yep. easily I have to say I don't drink I, I love wine with certain meals yep I think it pairs beautifully uh, I just love traveling and just having table wine right yes. just being you're in, you're in Italy you're in you know Greece or what just bring me the table wine and that's to me my favorite part yep. of wine unless it's Retzina. <laughs> Sorry, we don't like Retzina. Um, uh, b 
because we're we're all LA people here, um, the Central Coast. I will say the Central Coast is the best accessible wine. Uh, I'm sure there are people that love the Temecula wine areas and they produce some good stuff. I tend to prefer cooler climate wines. Mm. I'll put my bias on the table there. So while the Central Coast also has some much warmer areas, they have a lot of great um, you know, air microclimates where you have cool coastal uh, air coming in, giving nice longer growing seasons, cooler temperatures, longer hang times, and and wines that I think are more more elegant and developed, and not these giant you know palate punchers that a lot of we see a lot of in California. Do you guys have a favorite uh, couple vineyards or wineries that you that you would recommend to folks if they are looking to sort of wet their whistle and get in, dip their toes into Central Coast California wines? Oh, Absolutely. yeah, totally. Absolutely. You, what, go first. You go okay, first. so um, for something like a Chardonnay or a, like a Burgundian style, because to, to Chase's point, there's in, um, if you're driving up the coast and you go, you know, through the tunnel and go up the hill, right, up the 101, mm-hmm. once you kind of cross over into like the Santa Rita Hills, Santa Inez, that area, if you go to the left of the 101 and you go, there's this basically this valley that kind of, you know, uh, pulls kind of coastal influenced air from the water, which is not, as the crow flies, not very far from where you are. You get um, much more sort of Burgundian climate. You know, you get a little bit more humidity. It's cooler. There's a little breeze. So I like Sanford over there. Mm-hmm. Sanford is a, a really, really good it's producer. Too. Of, yeah, it's a great place. Mm-hmm. Good Chardonnay. That's what I like there. Um, I think they do, you know, bubbly. They, they've gotten more narrow and have really kind of focused on what's good. So I, I'm not a big Pinot Noir drinker, but they make a very good one or a variety of them. I am. Yeah. <laughs> <Sorry>. And they <laughs> are. And, and then if you go up to uh, further up the um, central coast, you know, more inland, um, it's definitely going to be warmer, drier. That's more, um, I, I guess I would say that's probably more like a, a Rhone climate. And up there, I, my probably my favorite is Tablas Creek. Mm. Um, there's other places that are fun, that produce a good wine at a good price point, and that are really accessible. And they're not necessarily earth-shattering quality, although some qu- are quite good. Um, but there's, uh, oh boy, there's a place called Hanson that's East Side Paso. He makes really big, uh, big red wines. There's a place called Cass. That's also East Side Paso, and that's getting probably further into a warmer climate. I don't know how they produce um, such good, you know, white wines there because it, it gets hot. Um, and it, yeah. but their their wines are very good. And then something like Niner, right off the forty six. That's just a fun place. There, there, you. The one that I will, I will definitely echo the most. There were some great recommendations. Uh, Sanford is also very good. Yep. Um, if you want to grow your Central Coast list, I would add to that Fiddlehead, which is the least impressive tasting room you'll ever see, <laughs> but excellent wines. Uh, it is literally a little, like, it's behind a Home Depot in Lompoc. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but very good. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the, don't judge a book by its cover. Uh, Presqu'ile is a great destination. They make very good wines. They have an outstanding chef. Go... Go there for a meal and wine. Uh, they're, they, 
make a they make very good sparkling as well. Okay. They source from a few different vineyards. Their own is very good. They know they used to source from a place called Rimrock, and their Rimrock Pinot Noir was one of my favorite, or let's say very high-ranking California Pinot Noirs. It's it's really delicious. Um, Beckman is very good. I've heard of that one. I understand that to be quite good. Beckman's excellent. Uh, Sunstone is... Sunstone's good. Sunstone's like a good... It's it's a fun place. It's a fun That's place. That's a good way to put it, yeah. Fun, Sunstone is... If, if you are remotely intimidated, don't be. Also, mo- I would say, don't, yeah, don't be intimidated by Sunstone. Certainly don't be intimidated by Priskill because you can basically look at it like a restaurant that makes their own wine. Uh, they grow a lot of their produce on the property as well, so you're not just getting the local grapes, you're getting the local produce. Yeah. Um, and if we were going, I'll throw out a couple, I'll throw, throw in a couple of things that, I, that are interesting to look for. So as a, um, not necessarily as a winery, but these are places that are vineyards that will supply to multiple wineries. Uh, Rancho Antiveros mm. has some fantastic fruit. Like I said, Rimrock Vineyard, very small production, very good. Steiner Creek, Rimrock and Steiner Creek, by the way, are in San Luis Obispo. Uh, both really nice vineyards that have um, great minerality coming out of their fruit. Um, and then even further north, um, I, I am a big fan of the like Bay Area. I like wines uh, also. I, I recently realized that I like wines from the Petaluma Gap a lot uh, for the same reason that there's this microclimate where it's just they produce a slightly different fruit than a lot of the places around them. Up in Sonoma there's a place called Mira that is really fantastic and delicious. Um, I think I'm blanking on a few other ones but that'll keep you occupied for a while. (laughs) If you can work your way through that list I think you've done well. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's the other thing too. I think you know, California in general. If there's a wine that we can be known for, and it, depending on your kind of your taste, your palate, or frankly, just how you feel about it, like you know, at a gut level, because um, some people sort of don't like this, but a you know, a good big kind of a chewy Zinfandel, mm-hmm. which is um, a, a, it's I don't know, it's the the cheesiest of California wines, but. They're also they some of them are just really good, and a really good high quality Zinfandel with your friends in the backyard, you know, making a uh, a steak or even a good burger or something like that, is great. Turley um, prices are high there, but the quality is very good. They're enormously alcoholic, uh, like super know, high volume. Oh, oh, yeah, these are like hot, like you know, 15, 15 plus percent. Some of mm-hmm. these you know big red wines, boozy. But he makes um, he makes Rhone white blends too that are also very good if if that's not your thing, um, and that's that's another you know fun stop up there. Um, there is it just because it's a neat place to go and the wines are pretty good. But have you ever been to Harmony Cellars in Harmony? Oh, I've not. No. Harmony is a postage stamp size. You know, it's a wide spot in the road on the one between Cayucos and Cambria. Mm. And it's huh. just, it's literally a couple buildings, but on a hill up there. And we sure have driven by yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> we we drove by it a million times for years. And finally, we started popping in there. And uh, 
that's another it's a fun wine drinking experience where the the quality of the wine is definitely above average i would you know i wouldn't necessarily say it's world class but it's very good and you're in in an environment that's just incredible so that's another fun road trip you know stop harmony cellars for sure okay i have to throw one more out because i just remembered it when i said i, I was blanking so there was there's this I don't know what to describe it. It's called El Pino Club, but it's spelled P-I-N-O. And I discovered this on a recent trip up to Sonoma. There was a wine I had called Sea Floored, S-E-A Floored. And it is aptly named how this was the most briny Pinot Noir I've ever had, and I loved it. I'm definitely biased towards that. Maybe some people will be disinclined because no, of that. No, you've got my attention. Briny is interesting to me for sure. But wow, was this great. So it, it, it's, part of a, it's part of some Pinot Noirs that are put out by this El Pinot Club. And I highly recommend if you're, if you're interested in trying something different um, and you like briny, because I seem to have Greg's attention now. The yeah, other, you do. <laughs> the other wine I will recommend, which yeah. is not from around here at all, specifically it's from an area in Portugal called Colares, C-O-L-A-R-E-S. Coastal red uh, wine-growing region, and these it produces a unusual for Portugal lighter red that is one of my favorite wines. Like, one of my favorite wines, period. Yeah. It's so good, and it's really kind of unlike... Anything the close the, the the most similar I have ever tried then was this sea floored from Alpino Club. I almost I almost broke Chase's head the other day because he he has like right like such an encyclopedic you know right. memory and I said what's a what's a Peruvian wine that you told me to get he said Peruvian wine what are you what are you talking about we, we, we I was supposed to be asking what was the Portugal wine oh, oh got it yeah and yeah so Chase yeah. was like searching his memory and I took him on a, a very large detour well I want to say you know years ago and if I we I know we definitely have some listeners in England so if there's anybody that'll correct me on this or who's interested in kind of the, the history of this stuff but the idea you know we sort of think about you know french wines as being you know so fantastic and and you know burgundies and and that sort of thing but i think you know 200 years ago if you were a well-to-do person in england let's say you know you would be judged by the quality of the madeira you served Mm -hmm. and you know the quality of the port and things like that and that's something that i have a little bit of experience with but not enough to you know really be like an educated consumer and that's a kind of a completely different corner of wine and spirits enthusiasm is stuff like that kind of wine and there's there's i think a lot to learn for me still in that area so anyhow just as a a quick aside that would be fun to talk about sometimes because there's all these different oh there's there's so much um but because you asked greg because you now put it on the air so it is a portuguese wine they sell it at trader joe's it is my I will say, it's my favorite cheap wine, full stop. <laughs> Best cheap wine I've ever had. It's like $6 a bottle. It could easily sell for multiple times that. And it's called Iolas. And good luck finding it. A Trader Joe's often will run out of it. A-I-O-L-A-S. You won't be disappointed. Buy a case if you can get one. <laughs> How many cases do you have? Uh, right now, zero. <laughs> Oh man! So let's 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 wrap it up on a few other you know co- interesting questions and then maybe some final notes. Um, 
keep it uh, you know sort of tight here. Something that we haven't talked about. I know there's some interesting materials here. Fiberglass, perhaps. Fiberglass, right. Yes. Let's talk fiber. Let's talk really off the wall stuff. Maybe like ceramics, sapphires, yep. fiberglass. We're we're staring at something. Um, carbon fiber. Carbon fiber. Yeah. What are some really off the wall things? Well, I think I think you named <laughs> the vast majority of them. Uh, we've seen sapphire in a few different applications. Probably the 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 best application and also the most ex accessible is when uh, Omega did the hour vision. Oh, that thing is cool. Yeah. You know, uh, I hadn't seen it. You, obviously, you know a lot about it, so I wanna, don't want to derail you too long. But when Schmidt had mentioned it on the wrist cheese, yeah, that was the first time I had heard of it, and I was like, it's blown so cool. Away. It's got yeah, the window. You yeah, can go on. See everything. Yeah. yeah. So the issue what you're going to run into with sapphire, obviously, is that it's brittle. You know, you you, you break it, you're screwed. So. Yes, there are watches that do their cases entirely of sapphire, and while it's interesting to look at, beautiful to look at, uh, you can see it, it's totally transparent. If it's a watch that you actually want to wear every day, maybe you should be slightly more practical. So Omega has a, has a combination of like a, a steel or gold and sapphire case. So the sides of the case frame are done in sapphire. Lugs are still in metal. So that portion that's most likely to have a catastrophic failure is done in the more resilient material. And realistically, if you manage to break the case frame just on the portions where it's sapphire, then you're doing something with the watch you shouldn't be doing anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, other stuff, I guess we should mention because it's on your wrist and because it happens, PVD. PVD. PVD wears off, DLC. What's on my wrist? Explain what I'm wearing right now. That's an old pre-tag Hoyer. Uh, I think it's reference 165306. But it's a Hoyer 2000 automatic chronograph uh, with a full PVD on the case and bracelet, but gold screws in the bezel and gold crown. So it's really very much, if you're going to use the John Player reference, this has the color scheme to the you know down to the nines. I don't often use this. I do feel like this is probably a matte uh, terminology. This is wabi sabi. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> this is great. This oh, thing yeah. is awesome. That dial was originally white with gold subdials, and the dial is definitely not white now. It's it's a very strong butter color. Yeah, <laughs> butter. That's actually a really good description. Yeah, yeah. For it. It's it's like you said somewhere between like a really desaturated yellow and ivory. It's really cool. This is a if I'm going to just by looking at it. It's a 7750 layout, but it's not, is it? This is a a, a module. That's yeah. a that's a modular chronograph. It's a Dupois de Bras module that has been used on many different bases. So Actually, one of the other pieces I have here is a Fittipaldi that's titanium and gold. Same module, except in this case it was on the, at the time, more premium option of the quartz movement. So uh, it's also used currently by uh, Audemars Piquet. It's been used by many different companies on many different models, but it is fairly easy to recognize with a couple of feet by two things that Matt pointed out. One is that the running seconds are at 12 and that there is an integrated magnification of the date calendar. 
the magnifier is actually integrated into the chronograph module so it doesn't change the dimensions or the layout of the case or crystal in any way. Yeah, it's a very cool thing. It, it reminds me of, is it the Royal Oak Offshore? That's right. Yeah, that where you, it would, if they didn't have that magnifier on it, you'd, it, you could probably like commit suicide by jumping off of the, yeah. the dial surface <laughs> like, to, to, you know, by the time you hit the, the actual date disc, you'd probably reach terminal velocity. It's so deep. These are some fun designs. These are I mean, there's really like cool. there's like this kind of claw, you know, at three six nine. Um, I mean, the gold screws that Chase mentioned. The crown guard is like above, yeah, the crown, and the crown's kind of like tucked like under it. I should now I feel bad because I have a slightly newer version of this two thousand, what they called the Super two thousand after Tag acquired Hoyer. Is that on your website? Yes, the, I've seen it. It's the, it's really cool. The Super two thousand. It's it ha then has the rotating bezel. And instead of gold screws, it actually has the gold stations for the you know, for the time lapse on the bezel. Um, and then that one has the crown and pushers, which interestingly, from what I understand, got them sued by Breitling because they were using the same supplier. And Breitling wasn't happy that they were using, well, not that Breitling was making their own, but that someone else was using those components and they they thought it too closely resembled their product you might have a hard time prying this off my wrist <laughs> it's it's a neat watch it's isn't it? freaking cool man yeah it's a really really cool this watch. reminds me of when matt saw your car at rt rogers <laughs> and i think we lost them for at least a good 10 or 12 minutes i'll be back yeah. And, he, and he asked you to bring it today by right. the way right yeah it's on my that. wrist right now yeah this yeah. reminds me of that i feel very similarly yeah i Ooh, man, there's so many cool things on the table right now. Well, so let me ask you this. This will be sort of my parting shot question, and it's kind of a multi-part question, but for somebody who is sort of, you know, bimetal curious, um, you know, wow. right? Or, I'm, I'm, wants are to we do... allowed to say that in Florida? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. The, um, if somebody's interested in exploring like the idea of either going into a, a precious metal watch or a steel and gold watch, what, you know, at, at a reasonable price, because I mean, things are just insane now, you know, what would be something that's vaguely attainable for like, you know, the average person who's got anywhere from, you know, two or three to let's say six or $7,000 to spend, you know, what do you have a Oh. I, I realize I didn't ask you that I was going to tell you that I was going to ask you this question, but you know, what would you suggest? There are actually a lot of options and you don't really have to compromise. Honestly, because, because there are two of them on the table here, you can buy a two tone DeVille prestige for in, for even with the bracelet, probably for that, you know, couple to few thousand dollars. And maybe, you know, maybe even one of the coaxial versions pretty easily. Same for, let's say, the Aquateras. And if you're going further back in time, then you know, the, the price keeps going lower, <laughs> obviously. But um, what else? The, I, I, I know I said it before. I, th I think that if... I, I genuinely think that of the Royal Oaks and Nautiluses, I think the 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 two tones are some of the best looking ones they have. I think they're they're so perfectly suited to those designs. 
Um, what else is interesting? Well, I you mean, know. probably an obvious one, right, is going to be, you know, a, a two-tone steel and gold Datejust. You know, those are those are creeping up, but those are still way more attainable than... I would actually say, so I'd say not even to get the Datejust, but if you really, you can save probably at least another $1,000 if you get a 34 millimeter. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Uh, probably one to $2,000, and the 34 versus 36 really are not all that distinguishable. Um, the, the, it's kind of funny that what I like, the 34 millimeter models actually had a lot of different bezels that were not as common on the 36. Oh, interesting. So one of my favorite bezels, um, it has different names, but it's, I call it the reeded bezel. It's not, it's like an engine turn bezel, it's like, it's like the child of a fluted bezel and an engine turn bezel. Okay. And it's, it has a more regular pattern like the fluted bezel, but it is not as shiny. It has much finer grooves like an engine turn bezel. And that was, not, that was done then on the 34 millimeters and not on recent 36s. So that's a great, great place to look. I'll give you the just because I happen to remember one of the, one of the references is going to be a one five two two three. Okay. That's a 34 millimeter two tone oyster perpetual date. Uh, I'm, I know that there are no date models as well. Um, that I don't recall offhand, but if you're, if you're looking to get into Rolex and looking to get into two tone, then you have a lot, whether, whether date or no date, 34 millimeters are, have tons of options and are probably the most approachable by at least, even if you're looking at the same budget, you can buy like the best example or a much better example of a 34 millimeter than what you would pay for a 36. No, that's an excellent point. And I think gold lends itself to wearing a slightly smaller, you know, form factor than you'd normally be used to in steel. Right. And, you know, in a weird way, I like the idea that you can get a bezel that was then exclusively done in gold, for example, like, and, and then exclusively done in a particular size. Um, Will Rolex ever bring back an engine turned bezel? Because they are freaking cool, man. Well, they just discontinued it. Yeah. Um, the last, when you say just, what do you mean? Within the last five years I okay. think the last model they did well they, they actually had the ladies model a little bit longer but the last men's model they did was a 115210 which if you're interested in some trivia happens to be Anthony Bourdain's watch oh uh, that was the last men's engine turned model they did actually they may have done a they may have also at the same time did a 114 uh zero one zero so they had an, a no date uh which i think it was still sold as an air king but both were 34 millimeters those though were those were only done in steel that was not two-tone or gold are you as impressed by rolex's new platinum fluted bezel as i'm led to believe it should be as impressive uh not really um <laughs> i don't i don't quite no, I, I always liked that the Platinum models had a domed bezel. Um, I think that was... Yeah, that was just a particular appeal. And I, 
Not, not that there's anything wrong with the fluted bezel. I just don't find it to be earth-shattering. They've done it in white gold forever. Yeah. And it was traditionally the delineating mark between the two. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point from a style perspective. I guess uh, I'd heard some folks saying that from a metalworking perspective, achieving a fluted bezel in platinum is impressive. Um, like platinum, the, the industrial in execution on it. Platinum finishing in general is should be impressive. It's it's more difficult to finish platinum. Just and actually, like we said before, same goes for titanium. Yeah, uh, I'm not as familiar with tantalum, and so I can't really speak to that as much. But properly finishing titanium is not nothing to be discounted at all, which is why you don't see a lot of it done well. You either see it in really kind of budget watches or from manufacturers like Grand Seiko who really know how to finish. Interestingly, that was one of Longa's releases. They did oh, That's right. They did their they first did watch right. in titanium, which to me is all is very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well that's a good segue. So, you know, I don't wanna, you know, keep you know, doing, you know, reactions to renderings. You know, that's right. not really what we love to do here. We like to see them and touch them and feel them, but be remiss not to say there's a lot of watches that just got released, right? So what stands out to you guys? What's a, a few, maybe pick two or three things that you just kind of, whoa, that's got my attention. Ooh, well, a lot of the things that really got my attention were maybe not revolutionary. We'll, we'll start with the 222. I'll just say my, my hat goes off to Vacheron for just re-releasing it properly and not screwing it up. Cause you know, <laughs> that seems to be par for the course. It's like, we're gonna do a re-edition. Um, and I'll actually touch on another couple of watches that I really liked. Omega just released a, uh, is it CK859? Please excuse me if the numbers are wrong, it probably is. But they re-released a watch uh, that was originally a, a 30T2 uh, with a new dual barrel master coaxial sub-seconds. They did a steel version and a gold version. Yep. Both are gorgeous, but that watch is not supposed to be 39 millimeters. I'm sorry. That watch, that everything that makes that watch what it is, is that it really should be at least closer to its original size. It's a time-only watch. Mm -hmm. And I understand that they wanted to use their highest spec movement, so I applaud them for that. But my the question I still in my mind is, really, it couldn't be... That is the smallest you could make it was 39. If it is, okay. Because it's a magnificent movement. Yeah, probably a commercial decision. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, the, the gold version, which I really love, has an enamel dial. And I don't understand why they have a solid case back on that one because that then has the balance bridge in gold for the, quote, luxury model. Um, if I had to make my own, I'd probably just steal the exhibition back off the steel model and put it on the gold one. There you go. Um, what else from the manufacturers? You know, we saw a lot of colors. Lots of colors. We saw, I don't like, I, I'm not going to um, say that those are new watches. We saw a lot of watches being released in additional colors. An interesting thing that Tudor did is they essentially, they gave, they, they did two things at once. They gave people what they were asking for in that it was a, uh, Black Bay, you know, the, the 50, sorry. The Pro? The, sorry? The Pro? The... I was going to say the, uh, essentially the 
original Explorer too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. the sixteen fifty. They're yeah. calling that the Black Bay Pro. Black Bay Pro. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I agree. That's a. I think yes. that's a really sharp watch. It's, it's, I think it's they did a good looking. job with it. It's very good looking. I'm. I don't really think that the hands suit the dial, and I'm not sure how I feel about the decision to leave off the bezels on the indices. It. Because the other tutors, of course, they, they have the bezels around the loom. This one, I see that it, it just seems like they've really tried to reissue the 1655, especially with that decision. But then they've still put the snowflake hands on it, so I don't understand. I would have liked it if they, with the snowflake hands, if instead of rendering the loom plots, the cardinal plots, you know, 1 through 12, at in, in a like a circle or a round format if they made it, you know, the square right. that you I, would see in like the, the Pelagos or, you know, the old uh, Tudor snowflake. That would have looked, I think that would have looked awesome on the GMT watch. Or to just put a, a different handset on there. They don't have to Yeah, just with, baton yeah, hands, something just, like that, or the, the, the science hands or whatever they call it, the engineering handset, you know. Whatever it is, they not it, those two elements definitely don't play well together. Yeah, I I think it would be better with some other arrangement, but I think it's good as is. That would make, you know, I would do it differently, but I'm glad they made that watch. I think for me, the thing that stands out the most, I like the, um, I don't know if they're presenting at Watches and Wonders, but the new, um, the colored dial Zen 556s. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Those are super cool. I'm reserving judgment. I think I need to see it. But the the root beer GMT from Tudor, uh, yeah. or whatever they're calling it, but it's kind of root beer adjacent. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I mean the two 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 really is kind of the the big stunner for me. I mean that's that's really cool. I mean obviously that's way out of my my price range, and it's not a watch that I would wear every day. But it's that to me was the thing that I was kind of happiest, I guess, to see. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think of that Cartier Mass Mysterious? Oh, I think that it's was, cool as yeah. hell. That is super cool. I, I was going to say that that to me is one where I just look at it and think, wow. I I still I, I I want to know how they made that work. I really want to know how they made that work. Yeah, give me the how-to videos, yeah. like everything. That thing is freaking awesome. Yeah, it really is. Yep, yep. Well, hey guys, we are pushing uh well past our normal time. This is going to be a super, like a mega-sode. Yes, or something it is. Like our that. first mega-sode. Yeah. We did a mini-sode a couple, two ago, right? That's now right. this is our first mega-sode. It's fitting. It it's wow. very fitting. So we should probably, I mean, we could easily, and we will, I think, you know, maybe revisit this topic and we can, you know, talk, get into more detail with some of the specific watches. Um, but we probably ought to. That's really cool, isn't it? Yeah, you get that back now. Yes. Yeah. Chase's uh, gold round uh, round case, gold Deville. But yeah, I think we uh, probably need to put a pin in it for now. Hit maybe you know um, final notes and wind it up. No yeah. pun intended. Yeah, I think it, I think it's a good spot to to, to wrap things. Um, this has been a lot of fun, Chase. This is like essentially like we said our, our sort of one year birthday. This is uh, I'm honored. Thank you. Just in general to be a guest, but to be chosen for the the one year, one year anniversary episode. The one year, one year anniversary of discussing the <laughs> doing it. <laughs> it only t it, it took a decent amount of time, but it, no, did. It, it was uh, 
this was an absolute wonderful afternoon. Thank you, guys. Yeah, I will do it again for sure. Well, yeah. on that note, cheers. Hey, here's to you. Cheers. Cheers. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast platform of choice. It really does help. You can find us on Instagram at Spirit of Time Podcast and contact us at spiritoftimepodcast at gmail.com. As always, please drink responsibly. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.